I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I trust you enjoyed a day of silence. And congratulations to all those who also participated in the disconnect from the tech. Because I'm sure that was difficult. And perhaps at some point in the day, you had some space to read, you know, a book <laughs> with a cover. <laughs> you can even scribble on them. And one text that I've been revisiting recently is the book by Kelly, published in the 1970s, entitled Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. It's an interesting book to look back on because at that point, the conservative churches were allowed to be a little smug because they were outperforming their liberal counterparts. Now the general stats have us showing all of us are equally declining almost as rapidly as each other. But there was an argument embedded in that text which I always found interesting and I find myself coming back to repeatedly. Kelly played around with the argument that the attraction of conservative churches is that they actually require and make demands of their membership. And the problem with liberal churches is they don't require or make any demands of their membership. Indeed, the beautiful gospel that God loves us and meets us wherever we are is so reassuring that if you find yourself unable to get to church one Sunday, then don't worry. God understands. Or if you find it hard to create some space in the day to be with your creator and to pray, don't worry. God understands. Or if you find that in the summer months, when the services change anyway, and the prospect of sharing a liturgy with the nine o'clockers simply horrifies you, <laughs> don't worry, we're a winter religion. Everybody knows that. <laughs> and if you find it hard to tithe and make a significant gift to the congregation that feeds you, don't worry. The clergy person isn't either. And I think there's a point to this thesis that at the end of a day like this and at the start of Lent, <coughs> we need to actually heed. And that is, it, it is really important that we recognize that the creed we affirm is a creed that believes that God really is. It is a creed that invites us into a relationship with that God. It is a creed that states and affirms that living as God requires is indeed the way to live such that one encounters life and liberty. You know, the lovely thing about that narrative in Deuteronomy is it's literally now Moses' dying words. As the narrative unfolds, the three 
farewell discourses of Moses, this is the climax where finally he is turning to the covenant people and saying, look, make a choice. And the choice is that you should choose life and prosperity over death and adversity. You should choose life. And in many ways, the whole of Deuteronomy is counterintuitive to our age because life is found not by a hedonistic delight of doing whatever we like, but by living life of obedience. True liberty, real living, isn't found in doing whatever seems right in our own eyes, but is found in a deep connection with our Creator who makes demands of us. Do you know, most Anglicans, most Episcopalians, much prefer Advent and Christmas to Lent and Easter. And it sort of fits our sort of disposition. We're a people who prefers carols over penitence. <laughs> but the invitation of this Lent is a real one. And I'm sure if you've, as you've lived this day, perhaps you have already identified certain demands that you want to work on in your own life that would indeed be an appropriate offering to God and a real attempt to give the Holy Spirit agency and space in our lives so that we can actually live lives worthy of the gospel that we affirm. As a community, I hope we will make demands of ourselves I want to just lift up, which doesn't happen very much in Anglican or Episcopal frameworks, but the act and practice of fasting. I think those of you who participated in the gadget fast, that was a real act of deprivation. I mean, it's addiction, isn't it? Scroll through, check Facebook. I do it, I'm guilty. So to actually surrender from that addiction for a moment is good and healthy and right. I also think it's interesting that Episcopalians are supposed to observe Ash Wednesday and Good Friday as fast days. And the lovely thing about being Episcopalian is not like the Muslim fast where they're expected not to eat or drink for all the daylight hours. Now that's in certain parts of the world, is really demanding. No, the Episcopal fast typically is 12 hours. Have breakfast at 6.30, break the fast at 6.30 in the evening. And it's a reminder of the privilege of eating. It's a discipline that inculcates an awareness that at a certain time in the day you are identifying with many brothers and sisters around the world who are also aching and finding the day difficult to cope with because they have insufficient food. It's a discipline 
that makes us mindful about eating, makes us aware that just because it's there, we shouldn't always take it. It's a very simple practice. And I think one of the reasons why we don't do it is because we all really quite like the Ash Wednesday reading from Matthew chapter 6, which tells us all, look at those people who fast in the streets and draw attention to it. What manifest hypocrisy. And we like that reading because we think to ourselves, well, that's a relief, we don't have to fast then. But of course, that's not what the text means. So this Lent, the invitation is very simple. It's to choose life. It is to choose liberty. It is to choose prosperity in the sense that you live a prosperous life as a person grounded in the eternal, able to relate to others. And you do that by making demands, finding a practice, discovering a rule of life, and making it part of who we are for this holy season of Lent. I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.